Hey there, all you true crime fans. I'm your host, Amanda Russell, and this is Colorado Crime. If you're new here, I cover cases from coast to coast with a special emphasis on cases that happen right here in colorful, crime-filled Colorado. If you're returning, thanks for joining me today. I don't have a long intro for this week's episode, but if you haven't already, go grab a snack because this one's going to be a long one. Let's go ahead and jump right into it. Today's case is about a 56-year-old man named Scott Lee Kimball. He's the first serial killer that we're going to be covering. I'd eventually like to do a whole series on serial killers, so let me know if that's something that you guys would be interested in. We could cover some of the more prolific serial killers outside of Colorado and find some of the lesser-known ones, like this case that we're covering today. I personally had never heard of this case, and I don't know how. This guy was a total piece of garbage. He was born in Boulder, Colorado on September 21st, 1966, and he's described as a con man, fraudster, and skilled forger. He also served as an FBI informant, something that would later cause much embarrassment for the agency. He lived a relatively normal life until the age of 10 when his mom came out as a lesbian and his parents divorced. His father left the state and eventually remarried. This event really affected Scott. He had his first encounter with law enforcement when he fired a gun out of a neighbor's window. Him and his brother, Brett, spent a lot of time with their grandmother. A neighbor of hers, Theodore Payton, saw this as an opportunity and began sexually molesting the boys in a cabin he had purchased in Netherland. The rapes began getting more and more violent, and Payton threatened to kill their father if they told anyone what he was doing to them. Scott moved away to Montana to be with his dad and his brother, but the abuse continued when he would come home for visits. At the age of 23, Scott attempted to end his own life by shooting himself in the head. The bullet glanced off his skull, leaving a permanent scar, but not killing him. He spent several days in critical condition and was changed after the failed attempt. A cousin was quoted as saying Scott had, quote, lost his conscience, end quote. After this, Scott and another boy came forward and reported Peyton for his crimes. Scott wrote a letter to the judge in which he begged him to sentence Peyton to additional prison time, stating, quote, He has denied me my right to a normal, healthy, innocent childhood. He has damaged my life forever, end quote. In 1991, Peyton was found guilty on six counts of sexual assault on a child and was sentenced to seven years in prison. He was released in 1996 and retired to the cabin where, according to his obituary, he spent time listening to old radio programs and watching old movies. Theodore Payton died at his home in Netherland on January 12, 2017. For years, Scott felt a deep sense of shame, and according to a former girlfriend, he felt like less of a man, which really is so unfair. He was just a scared child who didn't know how to navigate the situation. No matter what crimes he would commit later in life, no one deserves to have their rights or bodies violated. I guess you could make the argument of nature versus nurture. Was Scott a monster by nature, or did his horrible experiences as a child make him one? Regardless of what your beliefs are on that topic, Scott would grow up to become quite the monster. It is confirmed that Scott killed at least four people with upwards of 21. In 1992, Scott was convicted of passing bad checks. This was his first felony. He started out as a nonviolent criminal, 
but that would later switch and his violence would be unleashed on some of the people closest to him. In 1993, Scott would marry his first wife, Larissa Hines. The two moved to Spokane, Washington, where they had two sons. The couple divorced a short time later in 1997. Larissa claimed that process servers were frequent visitors at their home. Scott was running scams in the logging industry. She stated, quote, he always had an excuse. It was never his fault, end quote. The two continued to date for two years after the divorce was finalized until Larissa accused Scott of raping her. Scott told police that Larissa was lying and only saying this as she was trying to gain full custody of their sons. She failed a lie detector test and no charges were ever filed. Prosecutors had a hard time with this case as the two would continue to carry on a consensual sexual relationship even after the accusations. In 2000, Scott violated his probation for an earlier fraud charge and was sent back to prison in Montana. In 2001, he absconded from a halfway house, stole a truck and a till from his employer, and returned to Spokane. Larissa reported that Scott broke into her home, kidnapped her, and raped her again. This time, an arrest warrant was issued. Scott fled to Alaska, where he assumed the identity of his brother. He got engaged to another woman and resumed his check fraud business. He wrote $25,000 in forged checks before he was arrested again. He was convicted and sent to prison. While serving his sentence, he became a paid informant for the FBI and was never brought to trial on the Spokane charges. The FBI has stated that this was not due to his cooperation. It was because the Alaska agent was not aware of these. Arnold Flowers, Scott's cellmate, was planning to have a judge, prosecutor, and a witness in his fraud case killed. If Scott could secure a transfer back to Colorado, he would give the FBI all the details he had learned from Flowers. Scott told the FBI, and with Scott's help, they were able to record Arnold and his girlfriend making arrangements and were arrested in 2002. Scott struck a deal with the FBI and explained that he could be of assistance to them with other cases. Scott accused another inmate that he was cellmates with of accusing a federal prosecutor that was killed in Seattle, named Tom Wales. Scott was transferred to the Federal Correctional Institute in Inglewood, Colorado. This is when he officially became an informant for the FBI. Scott told FBI liaison Carl Schloff that fellow inmate Steve Enos was planning to have witnesses killed in his ecstasy distribution ring case. Schloff wasn't thrilled to be working at the prison. He was previously assigned to an organized crime unit, but was transferred to Inglewood and felt this position was beneath him. Schloff saw Scott as an opportunity to regain the career path he had planned for himself. Because Scott was previously an informant, there was nothing in his file regarding the rape and kidnapping. Scott was released in 2002 and went to live with his mom and her partner. He began flipping houses and set up an organic beef distribution company with $65,000 he had been given by his brother and his mom. This allowed Scott to travel around Colorado to purchase products. This is when Scott received his first installment payment from the FBI. He was set to make $50,000. Over the next two years, Scott would go on to commit four murders. Three of these occurred while he was an informant for the FBI. When Scott began working with the FBI, he told Schloff that Steve Hawley, an inmate he met while he was serving time in Inglewood, 
was planning an escape. Schloff contacted the prison and had Holly placed in solitary. However, Scott helped Holly come up with this plan, and Holly informed his girlfriend, Leanne Emery, to do as Scott said. The plan was Scott would drive his truck to the prison. Other inmates would cause the diversion. He would throw a ladder over the wall, Holly would climb it, and the two would drive off to Mexico. Leanne was 24 years old and had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder in her teens. She worked as a stripper for some time and was briefly married to a Texas man who was incarcerated. This is where she became involved with people who were involved in drugs and crime. Scott reached out to her towards the end of 2002. He began involving her in his credit card and check fraud business. Leanne was unable to communicate with Holly as he was not able to receive or make calls in solitary. She began to rely on Scott more and more. She admitted in an email to her cousin that Scott was, quote, dangerous, but if you don't fuck with him, he's your best friend, end quote. On January 16, 2003, Leanne went to her parents' house, packed up her car, told them she was headed for a caving trip in Mexico, and left. She told her sister that if anything happened to her, to remember that she loved her. Instead of going caving, Leanne headed out with Scott to steal checks. They had accumulated roughly $15,000 in stolen checks. She used her credit card to buy gas for the duo and also purchased a laptop. On January 27th, Leanne called her parents and told them that she would be in Mexico a little longer. This was the last time that they spoke to their daughter. It turns out she was in Denver when this call was placed. She had purchased and mailed a gift card to her sister. She checked into a motel in Grand Junction and spoke with her cousin for two hours. She explained that if Scott, who she was calling Hannibal, knew that the two spoke, he would kill them both. She told her cousin that if anything happened, to remember that she loved her. She checked out of the hotel on the 29th. This was the last account of Leanne aside from what Scott would later tell police. After his arrest, he stated that he drove her into Bryson Canyon in Utah. He asked her to go hiking with him, which she agreed to. They hiked up to a dead end, and that's when Scott directed Leanne to remove her clothes and get on her knees. He then shot her in the head with a handgun she had purchased for him just a few days prior. The next day, her car was found abandoned in Moab, Utah, about 40 miles from Grand Junction. Her parents didn't know anything was wrong until they received a letter from Holly stating he was worried because he had not heard from Leanne. Leanne's dad, Howard, wrote back and told him that they had not heard from her either. Due to Leanne being an adult, police were hesitant to investigate. Howard and his wife began scouring Leanne's credit card records and learned that she had not been in Mexico. Her cousin then shared the email correspondence between the two in which Leanne stated she was afraid of Scott. Days after she had left Grand Junction, her credit card was used to purchase gas in California. Her family regained hope that she was alive, but when they received copies of the receipts, they knew the signature was not hers. In 2003, Scott pleaded guilty in Colorado to the Alaska fraud case. His records were sealed to protect his work as an informant. The FBI flew Scott to Seattle, where he had a conversation with a man that he had identified as the killer of the Seattle prosecutor, Tom Wells. The conversation produced no information, and Scott did not stick to the script that the FBI wanted him to, and the whole thing felt off to agents. 
lie detector was given to Scott regarding his knowledge of the Seattle murder, and he failed. When a Seattle agent expressed doubt in Scott, Schloff became angry. He was confident in Scott's ability as an informant. The next month, Scott headed to Alaska to consult with prosecutors in the Flowers case. A warrant was discovered, and Schloff ended Scott's service as an informant. Schloff had Denver police arrest Scott when he returned from Alaska. The charge was for a minor violation of his probation as he had not reported a new address. After Schloff told Scott he would no longer be a confidential informant for the FBI, Scott told Schloff something he couldn't ignore. Scott went into great detail about a missing woman named Jennifer Markham, who was set to testify against Steve Enos. He gave details about how Enos's business partner, Jason Price, had killed her and confessed to him. A lie detector test was given again, and this time he passed. Because of his assistance with the Enos case, prosecutors asked for leniency in his sentencing for the Alaska case. Scott was fined $5,000 and ordered to pay $8,300 in restitution to the Wells Fargo Bank in Cordova, Alaska. He was also put on probation, which ended his formal service with the FBI, but he could still volunteer information. The judge in the case was hesitant, but sentenced Scott to time served. Jennifer Markham was 25 years old when she went missing in February of 2003. She had been dating another one of Scott's former cellmates, Steve Enos. Jennifer had recently moved from Illinois to Colorado and was living with her son's father. Her son was five years old and was the light of her life. Jennifer was working as a stripper, trying to provide for her son. When Scott reached out to Jennifer, he was working as an informant for the FBI. He had lied to Steve and told him he would kill the witnesses against Steve. He told Schloff this and told him he needed Jennifer to introduce him to Jason. Jason would then give him the gun to kill the witnesses. Scott told her that he owned some coffee shops in Seattle and he wanted her to manage them. Her dream was to own her own coffee and sandwich shop. Jennifer told Steve about this proposition and Steve encouraged Jennifer to take Scott's offer and moved to Seattle. The two had an altercation during this visit, and the prison was actually forced to close the visiting area. This was the last time he or anyone else heard from her, aside from Scott. Scott told Schloff that after the two met, Jennifer called him and told him she was headed to New York. He also claimed that she spent $600 to buy a revolver she planned to use to kill Jason. Shortly after the two had dinner, Jennifer moved all of her belongings into Scott's home in preparation for her move to Seattle. On the day that Jennifer was last seen, her and Scott's normally very active cell phones showed no activity. Scott's phone was used three days later, but Jennifer's was never used again. Jennifer's vehicle was left at Denver International Airport on February 18th. By the end of March, it was considered abandoned and towed for unpaid fees. Her son's father claimed she never tried to contact or visit her son again. Later, when Schloff was taking Scott to meet with Jason Price, he asked if Scott had heard anything about Jennifer, and Scott said, very nonchalantly, that he heard she was dead. Schloff pushed for more details, but Scott couldn't provide any. Schloff had tried to reach Scott on the weekend that Jennifer went missing, to no avail. When Scott returned from Alaska and was arrested, Schloff went directly to Scott's jail cell and informed him that he would no longer be an informant for the FBI. But, Scott
Scott told him that Price confessed to killing Jennifer. He told Schloff that Price showed him a photo of Jennifer's body bound and gagged before he put her in the trunk of his vehicle and dumped her in a creek in Rifle, Colorado, just 150 miles west of Denver. He also stated that Price asked him to go to the body and remove her breast implants as he feared they could be used to identify her. A drug enforcement administrative agent, Susan Hallinan, and Schlaff questioned Scott. She told Schlaff that she believed Scott had killed Jennifer, but when challenged by Schlaff, she couldn't think of what the motive might be. Scott was given a lie detector and passed when asked if he had killed Jennifer. Jennifer's parents became concerned when their calls to their daughter were not returned. In 2004, they discovered that Jennifer's abandoned car was found the year prior, and their concerns only grew. Much like Leanne's disappearance, police didn't give Jennifer's case much priority. Her parents paid to have a billboard with her photo and tip line erected above the strip club where she worked and offered a $20,000 reward. In 2004, Jennifer's dad had a police officer friend search Jennifer's name and Schlaff was alerted. He immediately called her father, Bob, and told him that Jennifer had not been seen since she was renting her furniture to a man. This was all the information given. Bob had pushed and pushed to get Scott's name from him. Reluctantly, Schlaff gave Bob Scott's number and told him to ask for Joe Snitch. Bob and his ex-wife flew to Colorado to meet with Scott. They met at a restaurant in Broomfield and they became very concerned when Scott told them the same story he had told Schlaff. Price killed her, drove her to rifle, dumped her body in a creek, and asked Scott to remove her breast implants. And now a new detail was her IUD. Scott told Bob that he would take him to where her body was located the next day. That night, after dinner, Scott showed up at Jennifer's mom's hotel room and told her to sign a contract, allowing him to tie her up and have sex with her, and he would tell her what her daughter's killer did to her daughter. She declined, obviously fearing that Scott was going to kill her too. It was in that moment that she knew Scott had been the one to kill her daughter. Before Scott killed Jennifer, he met a woman named Lori McLeod. They were both in Blackhawk gambling when Lori noticed Scott wheeling his mother up to a table. At the time, she was suffering from MS. Lori found him very likable. The two exchanged numbers, and Scott told her that he was an FBI agent and even showed her his badge. The two went on their first date on Valentine's Day, 2003 just three days before Jennifer disappeared. Scott told Lori that sometimes he would have to go away for periods of time and not be able to tell Lori any details. The most he would tell her was that he was working the possible murder of a young woman named Jennifer. Lori had a 19-year-old daughter named Casey. Casey had run away on several occasions, had been charged with credit card fraud, and was recovering from a methamphetamine addiction. At the time that Scott met Lori, Casey seemed to be on the right path. She was sober, living with Lori, and working a part-time job at Subway. Scott was arrested in June of 2003, and Lori was very upset. Scott lied and told her it was all a ruse to further keep his cover as an FBI agent. Things seemed to go back to normal until August. Towards the end of August, Scott presented Lori with drugs he supposedly found in Casey's room. Lori was furious. She thought that Casey was sober, 
When she confronted Casey, she vehemently denied they were hers. The damage was done. Casey left home, enraged that her mom didn't believe her. Scott left for a hunting trip, and while he was gone, Casey apparently disappeared. She had missed one of her shifts at Subway, and Lori was unable to reach her on her cell. Again, like Leanne and Jennifer, police declined to take a missing persons report. Casey was an adult. Scott came home several days later and comforted a distraught Lori. He promised to use his FBI connections to help find Casey. A gold necklace that had been dangling from her doorknob and a makeup kit that belonged to Casey went missing from the home. Scott suggested that Casey must have taken them. The landlord also told them that he had seen Casey and her boyfriend driving by. Lori forged on and searched for her daughter herself. She ran into Casey's boyfriend and he asked where she was. He told her that he hadn't seen her since the night that she had missed her shift. He told Lori that Scott had picked Casey up from the hotel room that he had rented for Casey and her boyfriend and he drove her to work. Lori doubted her boyfriend's recount of the story because at the time, Scott was on a hunting trip. Scott proposed that he and Lori get married. He said it would help him to be able to have more access to information on Casey. The two went to Vegas and got married. When they returned, Scott's mom, Barb, now an insurance agent, helped them to take out life insurance policies. Lori named Scott her sole beneficiary. In September, the two went on a honeymoon camping trip near Kremlin. Four years later, this would be the same area that Casey's remains would be recovered. The two had purchased a cattle ranch together, but Scott was increasingly absent and became verbally abusive. He began shooting prairie dogs and pretending that each one was someone he knew. He took out his anger on his oldest son, Justin, who he shared custody with. Justin was described as having a gentle personality. Scott considered his gentle nature to be a sign of femininity and often referred to him as Susie. It was now July of 2004, and Cody, the younger son, came running inside and told Lori to call 911 as Justin, his 10-year-old son, had been hurt. As Lori was on the phone with first responders, Scott came in carrying Justin. He completely passed her, put Justin in the car, and headed to the hospital. When Cody and Lori arrived at the hospital, Justin was in far worse condition than before. He was covered in blood, laying on a gurney, and convulsing. The nurse explained that the fall had caused serious injury. Lori and Cody were stunned and shocked. What fall? The nurse saw their confusion and explained that while Scott was driving Justin to the hospital, Justin accidentally opened the door and fell out while the car was driving 60 miles per hour. Scott also claimed that Justin was hit on the head by a metal grate and he did not expect him to survive. Barb heard what had happened to her grandson and immediately changed the life insurance beneficiary from Scott to herself. She later told an employee she had done so because she feared that Scott had tried to kill Justin. Barb noted that a few weeks prior, Scott had asked her who the beneficiary was. To everyone's disbelief, Justin survived. He was in a medically induced coma for two weeks, but when he awoke, his first words were, quote, quote, why did dad do this to me, end quote. 
Justin remembered his father dropping the metal grate on him and pushing him from the moving vehicle. A neurosurgeon came in and explained that it was possible his injury was affecting his memory. Because the two injuries occurred in different jurisdictions, it was unclear who would take the lead, and no charges were ever filed against Scott for nearly taking his own son's life. While Justin was in the hospital, Scott's uncle Terry came to stay with the family. He was there to help take care of Cody so Lori and Scott could be there for Justin. Lori was not happy with this arrangement, and I can't say that I blame her. Terry was a pretty big drinker, and he liked to walk around the house naked. Terry brought few belongings with him, two dogs, and the classic briefcase full of cash. He had withdrawn several thousand dollars from a savings account before a prior divorce. Terry was staying in Casey's room, who was still missing, and he began discussing going into business with Scott for a second time. The two had an argument previously regarding a logging operation in Washington State. Terry was actually married to a woman in Alabama named Karen Johnson. The couple had been married for 11 years, and Karen didn't want her husband living in another state. Against Karen's wishes, Terry did move to Colorado, a move that would eventually cost him his life. Shortly after Terry moved in with the family, Lori came home and found that her furniture had been rearranged, and she noticed that one of the couple's sofas was outside with a large stain. She asked Scott what had happened and he told her that one of Terry's dogs had vomited on the sofa. Lori didn't believe the stain was from the dog and made it known to Scott as well. He then suggested that the vomit came from Terry himself. But none of that mattered, because Terry had won the lottery in Ohio, met a stripper named Ginger, and moved to Mexico. Lori found the story suspicious, but couldn't deny she appreciated his absence. Karen Johnson, you know, Terry's wife, well, she was becoming more and more aggravated about him no longer contacting her, and she filed for divorce, hoping to entice some sort of response from him. Still nothing. She called Scott and Lori's home around Labor Day weekend, where she was told that Terry had won some money from the Ohio lottery and ran off with a stripper. The divorce papers were returned to Karen, and the divorce was finalized the following year. But Scott planned to benefit from his uncle's sudden departure. Scott began using Terry's credit card. He also used Terry's name to purchase 21 head of cattle for $12,000. The Department of Agriculture got involved when Scott failed to pay. Terry's bank then discovered that over $23,000 in bad checks had been drawn on his account over a four-month span. One year after Terry disappeared, his brother, Virgil, who was also Scott's dad, received an email from the email address terrykimball at yahoo.com, and it told him how much he was loving Mexico and he had no plans to return to the U.S. This was the last correspondence anyone received from Terry. Blood later found in the home would prove to be Terry's. By 2005, Lori hadn't given up hope that she would find Casey. Scott seemed less interested than ever, not just in finding Casey, but also in his marriage. Scott was traveling to California, and Lori suspected he was having an affair. On two separate accounts that summer, Scott called the police and claimed domestic violence. In both cases, Lori was arrested, but claimed that Scott fabricated the whole thing so he could move his waitress girlfriend into the family home. 
By fall of that year, Scott had moved out and began renting a home in Lafayette. He had convinced his new girlfriend to purchase a gun for him. His previous felony convictions prevented him from owning a firearm. He told her he would teach her how to hunt with a rifle, but after she had given him the gun, she never saw it again. In January of 2006, an optometrist in Lafayette noticed that he never received a bank statement. He discovered that there had been $83,000 deposited into his business money market account, but $55,000 had been written from the account. Most of the checks were written to Scott's Beef Company. Oddly enough, the optometrist shared an office building with Barb. Scott's Beef Company shared an office with his mom. Employees said that they saw the optometrist's mail on Scott's desk and a search of the office suggested that Scott had stolen the statements from the optometrist. Sheets of practice paper signatures were also discovered, along with fake subpoenas to Lori. Scott had also used an altered version of his mom's notary stamp to forge lien release documents for a car that had been severely damaged a month prior. At Scott's home, officers discovered a trailer that Scott had collected insurance money for after he reported it stolen. Police then decided it was time to talk to Lori. Although she was apprehensive, she agreed to talk with police at the station. From there, with officers listening, she called Scott on speakerphone, and he asked her to grab some mail from his office, potentially suspecting something was going on. After the call, Lori was asked what Scott did for work, and she explained that he was an FBI agent and even told them about the badge he showed her. The dots began to connect, and officers realized that Scott was impersonating an FBI agent to continue his scams. Lori explained how Casey was still missing, and she was beginning to think that Scott was involved. Police also looked into the accident that Justin had. Our good buddy Schloff was informed that Scott was up to his old tricks, but he wasn't surprised. Schloff was also informed that Casey, who was last seen with Scott, was missing. This is when the light bulb went on. Schloff explained that Jennifer Markham had also disappeared after being linked to Scott. Had this con man turned into a serial killer? Enter FBI agent Johnny Grusing. This name should be familiar to you. He's been involved in two of our previous cases. Detective Gary Thatcher with the Lafayette Police Department and FBI agent Grusing began building a case against Scott. They were preparing an arrest warrant for his many probation violations when they reached out to Scott's brother, Brett, who informed them that Scott had recently given Brett several guns. This was an additional charge. The FBI put out an arrest warrant immediately. Scott was now living in Riverside, California with his girlfriend, the same girlfriend Lori suspected him of cheating on her with. When police were attempting to make an arrest, Scott got into his car, played Nickelback's rock star, and fled. He called his girlfriend, who begged him to turn himself in. Scott wasn't going down without a fight. The chase lasted 260 miles until Scott ran out of gas in a field. After threatening suicide, Scott eventually surrendered, three hours after initially fleeing. Scott was taken back and forth between Colorado and Montana. He was sentenced to several months in prison, which gave investigators time to build a murder case against him. Scott denied any knowledge when they interviewed him.
Scott's second wife repeated her rape allegation and added that she suspected him of trying to poison her once. A former cellmate of his, who worked for his meat business after he was released, recalled that one night the two were drinking and Scott asked him if, quote, fake titties, end quote, were traceable. When he told Scott he believed they were, Scott became upset and asked the man if he would, quote, as a favor for a friend, end quote, take something from a body. The man, re- the man refused, but investigators couldn't believe how similar this story was to the story that Scott had told them about Steve Enos and Jason Price. A break came in the case when, unfortunately, Lori was evicted from the condo that she had previously shared with Scott. She began going through some of his belongings and discovered a handwritten schedule from Casey from the last week she worked at Subway. She immediately went to the police. Police found Casey's hat from her uniform and her personal date book. A receipt from a grocery store in Walden was also found. It was dated the day after Casey went missing. The same weekend, Scott was unreachable because he was on a supposed hunting trip. The evidence against Scott kept coming. Documentation for the Yahoo account in his uncle's name was found. The laptop that Leanne Emery purchased was found. Several rape, several rape pornographic images were found on the computer, similar to what was found on Scott's desktop computer. Scott also kept a folder full of newspaper clippings from the BTK killer, Dennis Rader. Dennis Rader was from Kansas. But that's a really interesting serial killer case, too. If you guys are interested in hearing that one, let me know. Also found was a picture of Leanne. She wasn't in any kind of distress. She was just smiling, clearly unaware of the evil that she was with. Grusing and Thatcher pushed Scott for answers, but were careful to not lead on that they suspected him in the two murders. This time, Scott told a new story. Scott Scott claimed that Casey had overdosed in his presence, somewhere on National Forest land. In 2007, Grusing traveled to Walden to see whether the area would conceal a body or not. While at the gas station purchasing a map, Grusing explained that he was an FBI agent and the employee told him that a hunter had recently discovered a human skull. After DNA testing, it was confirmed to be the remains of Casey McLeod. Now investigators had some leverage. They could confirm that one person was dead after being last seen with Scott. Scott had faced a possible 48 years in prison for the forgery charges. A particularly high sentence, but prosecutors were able to quadruple the sentence as Scott was a habitual offender. A deal was presented to Scott. Scott was to plead guilty to the fraud charges and reveal the locations of the other bodies. He would only face one second-degree murder sentence to run concurrently with the fraud charges. If he declined, he would be charged separately for the murders, which made the death penalty a possibility. Scott accepted the deal. He told investigators to prepare for a trip to Utah. He took them to Leanne Emery's remains, located outside of Moab. On their way back to Denver, Scott had investigators stop in Vail Pass and led them to Terry Kimball's remains. Jennifer Markham's body was not discovered. Scott gave several locations, but no remains were found. Since Scott did not deliver the three bodies, there was no deal. 
Scott pleaded guilty to all four murders and was sentenced to 70 years in prison. He is currently serving his sentence at the United States Penitentiary in Coleman, Florida. He's scheduled to be released on January 7, 2082. He will be 115 years old. Scott would later release more details related to the murders, but his claims became more and more extreme. Scott's account of his uncle's murder never changed, however. He claimed that he shot Leanne Emery twice when she tried to escape. He originally claimed that Jennifer Markham's death had not been at his hands, but he was present when she was killed. He later, he later admitted that he prepared a fatal heroin dose for her. Scott also claimed that his stepdaughter, Casey McLeod, overdosed on a combo of alcohol, meth, and oxycodone. In 2021, Scott would change his story again. This time, he accused the three women of blackmailing him and their murders were committed at the behest of a biker gang. He also claimed his uncle Terry was a child molester. None of these claims were ever corroborated. Scott has also been suspected in several other crimes. On October 25, 2004, the mutilated body of Katrina Powell was found near a dumpster behind the former Westminster Mall. She was 28 years old at the time. She had been strangled and her hands had been removed. Scott lived close to Westminster at the time of the murder. He also claimed to have murdered a prostitute and left her body in someone's backyard. Katrina had worked as a sex worker, but Scott denied any involvement in her death. On April 8, 1998, Leanne Reyes Gates disappeared from Austintown, Ohio at the age of 37. She was headed for Texas, but never arrived. Her husband reported her missing somewhere between six weeks and six months after she was last seen. For a long time, Scott was suspected of the murder, but on July 6, 2022, it was announced that her husband, an Ohio businessman who died of suicide in 2001, was responsible for her death. On February 2, 2009, a woman walking her dog discovered what she believed to be a human bone. She reported it to the police, and investigators discovered the remains of 11 women and girls and one fetus. They were believed to be between the ages of 15 and 32. Most of the women were Hispanic and involved with drugs and sex work. Police suspected that the bodies were buried by the same person or persons. No official suspects have been named, but in 2010, Scott was investigated for the crimes. He has denied any involvement. And that wraps up today's case. Thank you for tuning in this week. I'll be back next week with a new case. New episodes are released every Friday at 10.30 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. Please follow me on Instagram at Colorado Crime Pod for updates on next week's case as well as other true crime happenings. If you have any cases that you would like me to cover, please send me an email at amanda at coloradocrimepodcast.com. I hope you have a beautiful day wherever you are, and as always, stay safe.